MPB Think Radio. This is In Legal Terms, a show all about you and your rights. I'm Sharita Brent here with Professor Andrea Harrington, air and space law instructor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Professor Richard Gershon is away today. Today we'll talk about space law and how it impacts our day-to-day lives. Also, what's the connection between space law and Mississippi? We'll also talk about who owns satellites and other space objects that inadvertently return to Earth or become lost in outer space. If you have any questions or comments about space law, Give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464 or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll be back right after the news. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sharita Brent, joined today by Professor Andrea Harrington, Air and Space Law Instructor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. And Chico, just hold on a second. We're going to get to you in just a moment. But first, we're going to uh, try to make sure that our professor is on the line. Professor, can you hear me? Chico, in the meantime, while we get our professor on the line, I'm going to go to you. Uh, you have some comments about the Center for Space Law at Ole Miss. Good morning, Chico. How are you? Hey y'all! I just I just I heard the the promo and I wanted to ask y'all to comment uh, or talk about the Center for Space Law at Ole Miss. I think it's one of the cooler things about Ole Miss, like the National Marijuana Farm, that we have the National Space Farm or Space Space Law Center at Ole Miss. And also, the the Journal of Space Law has been published at Ole Miss for many years. I think it was started by Professor Stephen Garove, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. But uh, there's just a lot of cool stuff about Ole Miss and space law that a lot of people don't realize. So I was just going to ask you all to to speak on that. Now, Chico, is this uh, an area that you're very familiar with? Because it's not for me. So just just kind of reading about it and and preparing for today's show, uh, I've just been very intrigued by space law in general and how it affects us in everyday life. So is this a topic that you're pretty familiar with and you follow often? No, not really. The only law I'm familiar with is Murphy's. I just always <laughs> thought it was cool that the Space Law Center was at Ole Miss, and whenever it's in the news, you know, I, I read that, whatever it's pertaining to. Yeah. But there hasn't been a whole lot about it. Most people just really don't know. seems like a lot of people know about the pot farm at Ole Miss, but they don't know about the space law. Uh-huh. So, you know, we could learn about what the law is about being all spacey. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a good point, Chico. Well, thank you so much for calling. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll we'll talk about it in just a second. Thanks, Chico. Okay, then. All right. Uh, Professor Harrington, do we have you on the phones this time? Third time has to be a charm. Yes. Now I'm on the phone. Can you hear me? Yay. Yes, we can hear you. Uh, great. Uh, we had just gotten a call from Chico, who was just saying how wonderful uh, the space law program and everything is on the campus of Ole Miss. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about what you do as an air and space law professor there? Sure, and I can respond directly to some of his comments. So he's absolutely correct. We do have the Journal of Space Law that was started in 1973 by Professor Garove, and we have Professor Garove to thank for the pedigree of space law here at Ole Miss. Um, I'm currently the executive editor of that journal, and our adjunct professor, P.J. Blunt, is the editor-in-chief. We do have the National Center for Remote Sensing Air and Space Law, and it is the only center of its kind in the country. 
In fact, if you Google Space Law Center, the first several links that you will come up with will be our center at Ole Miss. Okay. So we do research as well as teaching. We have an LLM program here in air and space law, which is also the only one of its kind in the country. And we have a concentration program for our regular JD law students so they can do a concentration in remote sensing air and space law. So I teach in those programs as well as working on the Journal of Space Law and conducting research and writing and participating in conferences and, and the scholarly discussion at an international level. Wow. So there are actually career opportunities uh, for students and, and people who are interested in this, uh, this area of law. Absolutely. So right now that's actually growing because we're seeing such a shift from the, from the public space industry into the commercial space industry. And the United States in particular is really pushing commercial space at the moment, which we can see through the act that was passed at the end of last year. Um, but even more so in terms of space law in the U.S., you, they need to hire primarily American citizens or at least American permanent residents if you're dealing with issues of space because of our export control laws that create a very difficult situation for being able to share technical data or information about our space activities um, with foreigners from the U.S. So, so there's a, a good amount of jobs that are becoming available considering how small the field really is for American space lawyers. So uh, when you say commercial space, I was reading that, you know, at some point government agencies were uh, mainly in control of operating these things, but now private companies are starting to rise. Uh, could, could you talk a little bit more about that comparison? Sure thing. So first of all, in the U.S., the government is now procuring space launch and other space activities from private companies. So, for example, I'm sure most folks have heard about how SpaceX and Orbital ATK have been providing launch services to the ISS so that our cargo shipments up to the ISS for the astronauts up there and for the research to be conducted there are done by these private companies. And the U.S. pays these private companies for that service of delivering cargo to the ISS, for example. But there are plenty of other commercial space activities that are emerging that you might not think of so obviously. So, for example, remote sensing, uh, images captured of the Earth's surface for urban planning, etc., um, those are being done commercially. Obviously, there are telecommunication services that have long been provided commercially, and those are space services as well. So, for example, if you have DirecTV or uh, Sirius XM satellite radio, those are all being provided from space, and those are commercial entities that are providing those services. We also have more innovative and new applications for space that are being developed. So, for example, uh, asteroid mining is a huge topic right now in the area of space law, and there are a couple of American companies who are working on that project. Uh, additionally, we have suborbital space transportation, such as Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin, that are undertaking those activities, and those are private companies as well. Um, there are also high-altitude ballooning activities, which consider themselves as space tourism. So I don't know if any of you have seen that video of Felix Baumgartner jumping out of that uh, Red Bull balloon. No, I haven't. Like he's, it looks like he's up in space, and you can see the curvature of the Earth, and he jumps in nothing but a suit from what appears to be outer space and parachutes down to the Earth, and he does survive that. 
And that is at an altitude that is lower than is traditionally considered to be outer space. But since we don't have a defined boundary between the two, legally speaking, there are questions if those kinds of activities are going to be considered space activities. And we do have companies, for example, in the U.S., Worldview Enterprises, and in Spain, Bloon, that are putting these high-altitude ballooning activities out as space tourism for people to go up in a capsule attached to a balloon and view from above the curvature of the Earth where you can see outer space. Wow. Is that safe? <laughs> like, what, what are the regulations as far as that's concerned, the safety regulations? Right now, those are still considered to be experimental technologies, mm. and so they're not licensed as safe to carry passengers yet. Okay. All right. Well, you said a lot. Um, I was curious about the asteroid mining. Um, have there been some known benefits discovered of, of, of that, or is it just more explorative? So the thing that is most useful about being able to mine asteroids is that if you can get your resources in outer space to support the activities that you're carrying out and the exploration that you're carrying out, it becomes much cheaper to perform these activities because the most expensive thing about space activities for us right now is the cost of launch. It's extremely expensive to get anything outside of the atmosphere. So if we can mine water from planetary bodies or asteroids, then we have the opportunity to use that water to create oxygen uh, to support those activities, and that makes a huge difference. There are also more abundant heavy minerals that could be used either in space or on Earth, and as we're seeing a rise in 3D printing capabilities, we could use materials found in outer space to 3D print items that we might need for future use and exploration of space. And so these are all possibilities that are very promising in terms of space-based mining. It's just a matter of getting the technology there where we can actually carry it through. All right. So let's talk a little bit more um, about how humankind uses or relies on space-based resources. Uh, I think you mentioned weather forecasting, uh, satellite TV radio, uh, and satellite phone in remote areas. Let's talk about something like disaster management. And uh, I know you, you think that that's uh, relevant to the coast specifically. So how does how do space-based resources affect something like disaster management? So at the UN level, we have a couple of different organizations that help to deal with disaster management. UN SPIDER is the big one. There's the International Charter on Space and Major Disasters, and there are a group of space agencies that are part of that charter worldwide to assist with disaster management. So from the outset, meteorological satellites provide weather information. So if we have a weather-based disaster coming in, there will be data that's shared on reporting for that weather, and we'll have a better opportunity to know how to mitigate damages in terms of preparing for whatever is coming and making sure we can evacuate. We also can use remote sensing satellites in order to provide data on the ground to see what roads are still open, how if traffic is blocking the roads before a disaster or if there is debris blocking the roads after a disaster. And we can help local agencies to plan escape routes and plan to get rescue crews in using those remote sensing resources as well. And those are also helpful for rebuilding after the disaster. And so under these international agreements, we have countries freely sharing this data with each other in order to be able to save lives and help rebuild after disasters. And that's been a wildly successful space application and a wildly successful example of international cooperation. 
All right. Well, we'll talk more about these things uh, after the break. And the 877-MPB-RING is the number if you want to join the conversation. This morning, we're talking about space law, how it impacts our day-to-day lives. If you have questions about space tourism, asteroid mining, outer space, you can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. We do have some lines open. The number is 877-672-7464 or send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll be back in just a moment with Professor Andrea Harrington of the University of Mississippi School of Law. This is Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sharita Brent, joined by Professor Andrea Harrington, Air and Space Law Instructor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Professor Rich Gershon is away today, but today we're talking about space law and how it impacts our day-to-day lives. Later on, we'll talk about who owns satellites and other space objects that inadvertently return to Earth or become lost in outer space. If you have any comments or questions, you can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. If you have questions about uh, space resources, space tourism, asteroid mining, outer space, give us a call at 877 877- Seven six seven two seven four six four, or email legal terms at mpbonline.org. We do have some lines open. Uh, so, Professor Harrington, um, can we talk a little bit about uh, just a general definition of space law? I know we've already talked about some things, but, um, you know, how far does its inception go? Uh, I was reading about uh, Sputnik and, uh, you know, the Soviet Union launched the, the world's first artificial satellite. Do you think this was the beginning of some of these legal um, matters that we discussed today? Yes, I certainly do, Sharita. Um, so Ben Chang, who's one of our fathers of space law, posited that that moment created instant customary international law, which is a new concept in the international law forum. Usually international law of a customary sort takes a time to develop. You have to have a demonstrated state practice and a belief that that state is bound by that practice, either from an obligation or a right that it is allowed to do. So the USSR launched this satellite orbit above the territories of other countries on Earth. Now, when we're talking about airspace, airspace is considered the sovereign territory of the state, meaning that you can't enter the airspace of a country without their permission. Outer space, though, had not been considered at that point. We hadn't put anything in outer space. And so the USSR launched the satellite, and it orbited, and there was no protest. The United States didn't protest. No other state protested. And from there, the United States started launching objects that were orbiting the Earth. The USSR did not protest, as they had already carried out their tests and conducted similar activities. And so space activities went forward with the idea that there was a rite of passage in 
outer space, above the airspace of a country. We still don't have a defined term for where airspace ends and where outer space begins. So it's a little fuzzy sometimes whether you're applying air law or space law, even though those are two very different regimes. And there have been a couple of options considered for boundaries between air and space or how to define space activities. And this has been discussed at the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space since its inception, but we can't come to a political agreement on how we're going to define that term. And there is no one scientific way to define the end of airspace and the beginning of outer space. So I don't think this issue is going to get resolved anytime soon. But the two main ways that you could talk about differentiating would be either a spatialist approach, setting a specific limit where above that is outer space and below is airspace. The most common used for that is a hundred kilometers, which is called the Von Karman line. And there are some states like Australia that have accepted that in their domestic law as a boundary between air and outer space. The other way would be to take a functionalist approach as to say, what's the purpose of the activity that you're conducting? Is it primarily an aviation type activity or is it primarily a space type activity and defining which body of law applies based on the type of activity? And that gets very complicated because you get into some of these newer activities that we're looking at like suborbital or more accurately non-orbital travel. Uh, For example, Virgin Galactic that sends its vessels up so that you can see above the curvature of the Earth, and their vessels go up to about 110 or 112 kilometers, so that is above what we would look at as that von Karman line, Um, and that's a space tourism activity. So maybe that's a space activity, but it does spend most of its time in airspace, and when you start using that same technology for high-speed point-to-point travel, because if you use those non-orbital trajectories that approach at quite a high altitude, you can get from New York to Sydney, Australia in two hours. And so if we start perfecting that technology so that it's safe and reliable and we have the accommodation in the airspace for it, and you're having people travel from New York to Sydney, well, that looks more like an aviation activity than a space activity at that point, but it's utilizing the same technology. So it would be a very complicated analysis for us to be able to adapt that kind of a functionalist approach to real practical everyday use. So can you talk about some of these treaties? Because I'm sure it can get very tricky when you're uh, dealing with territory and space and who on who owns what and who can launch what where. Uh, so can you talk about some of the treaties in place to kind of uh, manage these things and maintain peace between states and countries? Sure, absolutely. So the biggest or the most important of these treaties is the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. And we're actually celebrating its 50th anniversary next year, which I think is a very exciting milestone for us. Uh, But that treaty has 104 parties to it, which includes all of the major spacefaring powers. And that treaty makes hard law the principles that had been previously articulated by that committee at the UN to establish what the basic parameters of using outer space should be. And so this treaty is binding law on those 104 parties that belong to it. And it includes principles that say outer space is for the free use and exploration of all countries, irrespective of their level of development. Outer space cannot be appropriated by means of occupation, use, or any other means. Um, that states have responsibility for all of their national activities in space, regardless of whether they are public or private activities, which is a really important point in space law, that space law, uh, or excuse me, that space can only be used for peaceful purposes, which we have interpreted to mean non-aggressive purposes. So you can have military activities in space, for example, military reconnaissance satellites, but not 
aggressive activities in space, and you certainly can't station weapons of mass destruction or nuclear weapons in orbit or on a celestial body. So there's pretty much no chance that we will ever see a militarized outer space situation. So the one scenario in which it's reasonable that we might be able to see a militarized outer space situation has to do with anti-satellite weapons. Um, because an anti-satellite weapon could be a defensive weapon for a state to have in case their satellite assets are attacked in a conflict, be it with another state or with a non-state actor. And so the one real weaponization we could see of outer space is not anything like lasers that are going to be shooting down on Earth or attacking the Earth from outer space, but weapons that would potentially damage or disable other satellites that are in orbit, thus rendering capabilities useless, especially for militaries that heavily rely on the use of satellites at this point. Okay, uh, so you can continue. You were talking about um, the Outer Space Treaty and uh, irrespective of development, there's the freedom of exploration and you're supposed to do non-aggressive things. Uh, What else falls under this treaty? It also tells us that states have liability as well as responsibility for both their public activities and also their private actors that are their nationals in outer space. And so if damage is caused, the state is on the hook to pay that out internationally speaking. Uh, we get to know that space objects should be registered and that their use and ownership is limited to the jurisdiction of that state that has its ownership, and that ownership is not affected by its return to Earth. There needs to be due regard for other states' space activities when you are carrying out activities in outer space, and if you think you may interfere or you think another state is going to interfere with your activities, then you can have consultations, and you're supposed to have consultations under the Outer Space Treaty to resolve that conflict. There is also a provision telling us that we need to be cautious about contaminating Earth with anything that we might bring back from outer space. Um, And we even have provisions built in there for visiting or inspecting moon bases of other states, because that's what we were contemplating at the time this treaty was drafted in 1967. And so the four treaties that follow on after the Outer Space Treaty expand on the principles that were first laid out in a basic way in the Outer Space Treaty. So the Return and Rescue Agreement, which has 94 parties, almost as many as the Outer Space Treaty with its 104, expands on Article 5 of the Outer Space Treaty, um, dealing with the rescue and return of astronauts and space objects that are found on the surface of the Earth when they return They re-enter and they wind up somewhere else on the Earth other than their original state. And so astronauts cannot be detained if they wind up on the high seas or in the possession of another state on their territory. They have to be returned to their launching state upon, upon landing. And so that comes out of a USSR, U.S. Cold War situation where we didn't want those pilots who were often military pilots who had become astronauts to be detained by the other state or by an ally of the other state. We wanted to make sure they were protected and safe and would be returned to their home state. Um, Also, if you have an object that lands on the territory of another state, you can request that that state recover the object and return it to you. But you are going to be on the hook for the cost of that recovery if you do make that request. So say an object is sent by a state and it does cause damage in outer space. space. What is the the risk of causing that damage? Uh, How steep are the penalties? 
So if it causes the damage in outer space, as you have suggested, then it's a fault-based regime under the liability convention, which is the next treaty I was going to discuss. So you have to be able to prove fault as to which space object actually caused the damage in order to recover from uh, a state for damage caused in outer space. It's a different story if we're talking about damage caused on the surface of the Earth or to an aircraft in flight by a space object. In that case, it's a strict liability standard. There is no fault that needs to be proved. And so as long as you can demonstrate who that object belongs to, then you can recover from that state. So a lot of states in their domestic law, including the United States, will have provisions when they license an operator to act in outer space that they have to have a certain amount of insurance or ability to self-insure with financial proof that they will be able to pay back the United States for damage that they may cause because the United States is going to be the one that has to pay it out and then they can get indemnified under domestic law by the private actor. All right, we need to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll continue talking about space law, how it impacts our day-to-day lives. If you have any questions or comments about what you can or cannot do uh, in outer space, give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. If you have questions about space tourism, objects that land on space, give us a call at 877-672-7464. We also talked about asteroid mining. If you have any thoughts about that, call us at 877-672-7464. That's 877 877- MPB ring. We do have some lines open if you want to join the conversation or send an email to legal terms at mpbonline.org. This is Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is a show all about you and your rights. I'm Sharita Brent here with Professor Andrea Harrington, Air and Space Law Instructor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Today we've been talking about space law, some of the treaties, how space law impacts your day-to-day lives. You can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING if you want to join the conversation. I think this is a topic I'm very curious about. So if you are curious about what you can and can't do in space, if you have questions about space objects, uh, you can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. If you have any questions or comments about space tourism or asteroid mining and uh, resources, natural resources in outer space, the number is 877-672-7464. That's 877-MPB-RING. You can also send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. All right, we are going to the phones. Josh is in Ridgeland. Hi, Josh, you're on the air. Yes, I had a question I wanted to ask about a um, some letters I've been hearing about about a planet X or a planet Nibiru is associated that way. I just wanted to know if you had any information on it. Okay, you said a planet X or a planet what? Nibiru is what it's called online. Okay. All right, so Josh. Is this, is this the new exoplanet that's been discovered? Is that is that what you're asking about? I believe so. It's probably like a red planet and more other planets with it. Okay. So we have been discovering new exoplanets lately that are Earth-like planets. 
And that has been spurning a lot of discussion about the possibility of finding life in outer space and also long-term possibilities for human settlement in outer space. And so one of the topics that is coming up a little bit more recently is astrobiology in terms of what do we do if we find life. And even if we're talking about microbial life, when we say life, we don't necessarily mean we're going to meet the Vulcans and they're going to teach us how to use warp drive. Um, But even microbial life is something that we need to be concerned about. And we want to make sure that we are not contaminating other planets in our studies as we are going forward, and also that we don't bring back any of these microbes and wind up contaminating Earth so that we can do our own studies as well. And so these questions have started to be really explored in a more detailed way in modern times as we are finding these kinds of planets, as you're describing. And so from a legal perspective, whether or not we're going to continue using the COSPAR planetary protection guidelines uh, which are not binding law, or whether we need you know, some more binding agreements between those states that may wind up um, doing more planetary research out there, is, is a question that will become more relevant as activities exploring these kinds of planets become feasible as we have something, if we can ever wind up launching, to go explore these kinds of planets. But it's also relevant when we're talking about Mars, because we still don't know if we might find some sort of microbial life on Mars, given that we know there is water on Mars, and we do have salts on Mars. And so really reviewing what the rules should be and dealing with that question, if we are putting humans, for example, on Mars, is an important question. And making sure that anything like a rover that we would send is appropriately sanitized to make sure we're not contaminating so that our research is going to be contaminated and or that life form could be potentially damaged or destroyed as a result of invasive microbes from Earth. So these are all issues that wind up coming up as a result of new discoveries like those exoplanets that we're looking at. Uh, and one of the planets they are saying, as you can see, like in the night sky, it's not easy to see this, like it's Mars or whatever. It's up on the other side of the sun, and you should be able to see it with a telescope. I believe you that that's true, but I'm not an astronomer, and I don't actually have my own telescope. Um, I really deal with the legal aspects of it, so... I would suggest looking up online and finding the instructions for how to do that if you're interested in actually viewing the planet through a telescope. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Josh. We appreciate your call. 877-MPB-RING is the number if you want to join the conversation this morning. We're talking about space law and how it impacts our day-to-day lives. Uh, We've talked about a lot today. If you have any questions about space tourism, asteroid mining, uh, you can give us a call. Natural resources on space, what you can or cannot do in outer space. Call us at 877-672-7464. We do have some lines open. The number is 877-MPB-RING or you can send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. Um, now, Professor Harrington, did we get through all of the treaties? I know we talked about outer space, the Rescue agree- Agreement, Liability Convention. Um, what about the, the Moon Agreement? Is that one still active? So we do have two more treaties. The Moon Agreement's the fifth one. We did skip the fourth one, which is the Registration Convention. That one is pretty straightforward. That deals with how states can register their space objects, They create a national registry to register their space objects and also perform a registration on the U.N. registry. The U.N. registry is maintained by the U.N. Office of Outer Space Affairs, also known as U.N. USA. So if you actually Google U.N. USA, O-O-S-A, you can look at their website and see the registry of space objects, who has launched what object when, what kind of information has been provided on them. 
And that's a very interesting resource to look at. You can on that website find the treaties, find the ratification status of those treaties, as well as a directory of national space laws. If you're curious about a particular country's space laws, that information is all there. And the United States actually does make its national registry available online. So you can just do a Google search for the U.S. National Space Registry, and you'll find a list of all of our launches, which include the shuttle launches, for example, each of the shuttle launches individually, um, because a registry in space terms is per launch. It's not per vehicle, unlike aviation, where your registration in aviation is going to be per the aircraft. So the treaty that, go sorry. ahead. I was just going to say the treaty that you mentioned is the Moon Agreement, but if you have a question about the registration convention, yes. we can talk about that before I move into the Moon Agreement. Um, I wanted to know how hard it is to get a space object registered. I mean, are the, uh, the, the criteria just really difficult to get it registered, you know, to make sure that it's legitimate? So the actual registration, when an individual state is a, a country's government is registering a space object is not a difficult procedure. They just send a document to the United Nations with the details and it gets filed there. What you're talking about is more likely, first of all, the domestic registration of a space object, which means that you're going to need to go through a national licensing process depending on which country you're in and certainly in the United States. That is how the U.S. maintains its obligations to authorize and continuously supervise its actors in outer space under Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty. So it is quite a lengthy process in order to get a license to launch an object into space from the United States. There are environmental assessments that are done, safety assessments that are done, appropriate insurance has to be obtained. There have to be frequencies allocated for the use of that space object. And if it's a remote sensing satellite, then you need license from NOAA, the National Oceanographic an atmospheric administration in order to uh, carry out those activities as well. So there are a number of licenses that you might need to obtain. As far as the frequencies are concerned and the orbital slots are concerned, there is an international organization called the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, and what they do is they coordinate and allocate orbital slots and frequency resources, not only for space, but they also allocate frequency resources for radio and other uses. But as far as space is concerned, this is the body that you will apply to to get an orbital slot and to use frequency within a certain band in a certain region. And so though you may not think of orbital slots and radio frequencies as natural resources, they are, in fact, they're limited natural resources that need to be shared at an international level. So you do also need an orbital slot and a frequency to be able to launch a space object. Okay. And uh, before we get to the Moon Treaty, we have a couple calls to get to. We're going first to Brandon, who's in Oxford, with a question. Good morning, Brandon. What do you have for us? Uh, yeah, I, um, it's curious. Uh, in the past, I've seen things on the Internet offering plots of land for sale on Mars. And my question is about property rights and mineral rights or ownership of space bodies and um, if there's any laws that have been designed or developed applying to that. And I'll be glad to take my answer off the air. Great question, Brandon. Thank you so much. Uh, Professor Harrington, what do you what do you think about that? So you mentioned two very distinct separate things, property rights and mineral rights, and those are handled differently. So to start with, property rights are absolutely not allowed in outer space. Those things that you see online, selling plots of land, you will generally, if you look at the fine print on those, see that they are for entertainment purposes only. So you get a funny little certificate that says you own a plot of land on Mars or on the moon. Those 
kinds of claims have been tested in courts, both in the United States and China, and they fail under the Outer Space Treaty regime, given that Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty tells us that we cannot appropriate in outer space. And if you're wondering about that flag we planted on the moon, even Congress um, came out and declared that that was a symbolic gesture only. Um, that was you know, the United States planting a flag on the moon as a gesture that mankind had made it to the moon, and it was an achievement of the U.S. that we had made it there, and so we planted a flag. It is not the flag planting of the days of yore when colonization was active on the terrestrial Earth. So that's that issue. As far as mineral rights are concerned, in the international regime, there's some contention about the ability to use minerals for commercial purposes. If you're using minerals to support your exploration and scientific activities in space, that's completely fine. There's no question about that. But if we're talking about what we're talking about in the U.S., which is mining asteroids for commercial purposes, some states interpret that under the Outer Space Treaty that's not appropriate because it's considered appropriation, and some states find that that is not appropriation if you extract the resources and then you move on and you're not claiming the territory that those resources are settled in. And so in the United States, we have taken that view that you can mine space-based resources for commercial use, and that was codified at the end of last year in the 2015 Space Act, which says that the U.S. government can license private companies to extract and use space-based resources for commercial purposes. They can own and sell the resources that they extract, not the asteroid or not the celestial body itself, but the resources that they extract. And that act does specify that it is in compliance with the Outer Space Treaty and the regime that the U.S. is party to. And so there's some conflict For example, when I was at the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space Legal Subcommittee um, earlier this year, the Russian delegation raised that they do not believe that that act passed by the United States is in conformity with the treaty. And that's something that's being dealt with diplomatically at an international level. Because when the treaty was drafted in 1967, we didn't have the technology or the understanding of how this was really going to work in the future. And so from that perspective, the regime is a little bit outdated and subject to interpretation as to the applicability to the activities that we're developing now. All right. Um, Let's see. Before we go to the break, we're going to go to Mark, who's in South Mississippi, with a question. Good morning, Mark. What do you have for us? Yes. Hello? Hey. How's it going, Mark? I'm doing okay. I'm an old man, okay? Okay. (laughs) I was a young teenager when President John F. Kennedy challenged this nation to do something that we all thought was impossible. But yet we did it. And I remember very clearly so many people who didn't believe it after it happened. And we went there many times afterward, but here we are. Well, you know the president could the present condition of the United States of America as far as space goes. Okay? Are you still there? Yeah, we're still here, Mark. We're listening. All right. This is my point. I won't be here much longer, okay? But I do know that if we want to go further in space, we need to get a conglomeration of nations. In other words, America, Russia, the European Confederation, China, if you got all of them together and everybody put a little money in, guess what? There's no stopping us. And that was my point. 
Okay. All right, Mark, uh, interesting thought. Uh, Professor Harrington, any additional thoughts? Sure. Well, from a practical perspective, that may be true, and that certainly would facilitate our further development in outer space. Unfortunately, there are some legal hurdles to that. For example, in the U.S., we have domestic law that severely limits or prohibits our ability to cooperate with China with regards to space activities. And so, as you mentioned, China would be an integral part of such a conglomeration, as you put it, um, but would not be possible under the current domestic laws in the U.S. So that would need to change in order for that to move forward. But another possibility is commercial use of space. And so I don't know if you watched Elon Musk's talk last month about his plans for SpaceX's colonization of Mars. If you are interested in this and you haven't seen that, you should Google that. It's available on the SpaceX website as well as on YouTube. He gave this talk in Guadalajara, and I was there to hear his talk. It was quite inspiring. But he has a quite developed plan, in fact, to be able to settle and put a permanent colony on Mars. And his technologies that he has been developing in the private sector have been building towards his ability to get there. And so if you look at not only SpaceX, which has given us the the launch technology to get into low Earth orbit, which is where we would send any further craft onward to Mars from, um, that he has been successful with that. His other ventures, say, for example, Tesla, have been developing solar panels that I don't know if you saw the announcement this week that you can put on on houses now, um, this technology that's being developed that are highly effective solar panels, and clean energy, clean renewable energy sources for vehicles like the Tesla models that have come out. And those will be useful and those will be applicable in the exploration and use of Mars. You will need these kinds of vehicles in order to be able to explore and use the resources of Mars. And so I think the commercial sector is actually giving us the opportunities for what you're hoping for moving forward. Unfortunately, it sounds like maybe the colonization of Mars is not going to happen within your lifetime, but I do have high hopes that it will happen within the lifetimes of some folks who are listening to the show now. All right, Mark, thank you so much for that call. We appreciate it. And uh, Jonas, I don't think we're going to have time for a break. So um, I just want to uh, ask Professor Harrington about the moon treaty. Uh, That's one we did not get to just yet. Yep. So the Moon Agreement is the fifth treaty. That one only has 16 parties that have ratified it. So it is only applicable law with regard to those 16 parties. And every year we see one more country kind of trickle on, at least in the last couple of years, to ratifying this treaty, which comes, uh, which is, is several decades old as well. It comes from 1978. And so there are a couple of controversial points about the Moon Treaty. One is that it establishes a possibility for a regime that the states who are party to it can set up a group that makes the rules with regard to use and extraction of resources in space, i.e. space mining, which is what we've been discussing earlier. And that is parallel to a similar provision in the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which has also been problematic for the U.S. with regards to ratification. U.S. is not party to the Moon Agreement, nor any of the other major space powers. That being said, the Netherlands is part of the Moon Agreement, and I don't know if you've heard of Mars One, but that is the commercial enterprise that's looking to put settlers on Mars in the near future, Um, and they've actually gone through a candidate selection process. They've narrowed down to 100 astronaut candidates, and they're going to narrow that further down to 24 that they're going to put through training. If that private entity, which is registered in the Netherlands, winds up being able to carry out its colonization of Mars, the Moon Treaty will apply to that activity. Now, you might be thinking, it's called the Moon Treaty. Why would it apply on Mars? The answer to that is that the the treaty is defined in such a way 
that it applies to the moon and any other celestial body that does not have its own individual treaty. So if we were to pass and ratify, for example, a Mars treaty, then the moon treaty would no longer apply to Mars. But at this point, if a party to the moon treaty carries out activities on Mars, the treaty will in fact be applicable to those activities. And so the only way I think we're going to see applicability of the moon agreement moving forward is if Mars 1 does actually get out there. The other point of controversy that comes from the Moon Agreement is the language common heritage of mankind. Space and the resources in space are considered to be the common heritage of mankind under the Moon Agreement, and this is far and away the most controversial provision because there's concern that that language means that commercial use and appropriation is not applicable of natural resources, not of the land. You will never have... Uh, under this treaty regime, either the Outer Space Treaty or the Moon Agreement, actual appropriation of real estate property, but of the mineral resources, that those would need to be shared for the benefit of all mankind under this common heritage principle. And it's not clear whether that's true or what that common heritage of mankind language really means, but it has scared off countries from ratifying this agreement, including the United States and the other major space powers. And so I don't think we're likely to see a resurgence in the Moon Agreement as a result of that. The interesting point is that that agreement was drafted and agreed upon by consensus at the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, which included a United States delegation negotiating it. But when that treaty text was brought back to the U.S. for ratification by Congress, which is necessary for a treaty to take effect in the U.S., these issues started to emerge, started to come out in discussion, and it became clear that the U.S. was not going to be comfortable ratifying this treaty. Well, Professor Harrington, it has definitely been a pleasure having you on today. You are extremely knowledgeable in these things and make them uh, sound so simple and understandable. So I really appreciate you being on today uh, and having this conversation with us about space law. Uh, Before we go, can you tell uh, our listeners where they can get more information if they're just curious about space law and legal matters in general? Absolutely. So I think the easiest and the best resource for you if you're looking for information on space law is that UN USO website that I mentioned earlier. That's the UN Office of Outer Space Affairs. And they have all of these treaties uploaded as well as the principles, which are soft law principles that are applicable to outer space, including things like use of nuclear power sources in space, remote sensing, and direct broadcasting. You can also find there uh, national laws that have been passed with regard to space and how those nas- see how those national laws implement the international regime. Some of those national laws may only be in their native language, so you might not be able to find all of them in English, but it's a good jumping-off point and a good resource. And if you're interested in learning more about space law, you can find my contact information on the University of Mississippi School of Law website, and I'm happy to answer any questions. All right. Professor Andrea Harrington, thank you so much for being on today. We really appreciate it. Uh, That's going to wrap us up here on In Legal Terms. Jonas Adams was our board operator, and Kevin Farrell, I believe, was our call screener. Thanks so much uh, for joining us today. Stay tuned. Southern Remedy is coming up next, relatively speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress. We'll be back next Tuesday at 10. This is Think Radio on MPB.